Thanks again for listening to the EM Stud Podcast. It is December 31st, 2014, and what a year 2014 has been for emergency medicine. We've had an awesome match, a lot of excitement in the world of social media, some really great articles related to clinical practice, and an incredibly competitive application season. Not to mention, we started EM Stud this year. So in what I hope will become a tradition for us, let's take a look back at 2014. First, for all you fourth years out there eagerly awaiting match day, I bet you can easily imagine how exciting the first few months of the year will be. Last March, emergency medicine had an incredible match, filling over 99% of almost 1,800 spots in the U.S., and I fully expect we'll have another successful match in 2015. Emergency medicine remains a competitive, highly sought-after specialty, and we saw this in the number of applications this fall that skyrocketed. And even though I don't have the official stats, just from the types of applicants I've met and the students I've had rotate with us here at VCU, I can tell you your qualifications, your board scores, your transcripts, your publications, and other accomplishments are nothing short of phenomenal. It seems to me that our specialty is continuing to attract the best and the brightest from medical schools across the country, and that is a huge plus for emergency medicine. And not just for the sake of the specialty, but also for the sake of the entire healthcare system in the U.S. In 2011, there were over 136 million visits to the ED, up from a little under 130 million in 2010, and it's projected that our volumes are going to continue to rise. And these aren't just visits by the uninsured or those who simply don't have another way to get care for their minor complaints. According to the CDC, the majority of these patients were triaged at the minimum as semi-urgent, if not urgent, emergent, or immediate in terms of their need to be evaluated and treated right away. What's causing this increase in ED visits across the country? Well, it's probably a combination of things, perhaps uh, saturated primary care infrastructure, the aging population, the culture of accessing healthcare through the ED that we've developed over the past half a century or so, or the Affordable Care Act that we really saw take effect in 2014. In any case, the demand for emergency physicians is high, and it is a good thing that so many medical students are drawn to emergency medicine. And in my opinion, it's a great choice. We are privileged to take care of anyone who needs us. We're the decision makers, the people who get things done even when information and time is sparse. We are on the front lines every day working through times of crisis, disaster, or epidemic. Anything can roll through that front door, even Ebola. And by the way, I learned a little while ago that our hospital is one of the designated Ebola centers, which is, um, fantastic. So for those of you who haven't yet made up your mind about EM, the new year is as good a time as any, I suppose, to reflect. Let's take a second to look back at just a few of my favorite clinical topics from 2014 that I think showcase some of what we do. In April 2014, the PETHO study, P-E-I-T-H-O study, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was one of several trials aimed at helping us decide if someone with a submassive PE should be treated with thrombolytics. If you're not familiar with the term submassive PE, we're talking about those PEs in patients who are generally talking to you, appear clinically stable, but have evidence of right heart strain. Their RV may be big on CT, their BNP or troponin may be up, they're not squeezing so well on the right side on cardiac echo. These are patients who we think are at high risk 
of deterioration or having significant long-term symptoms if we don't actually fix and not just stabilize the problem. So things like aspirin or Plavix, which just make your platelets a little less sticky, or unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin, which hopefully keeps a clot from progressing, may not be enough. Instead, thrombolytics like tenecteplase or alteplase can potentially dissolve the clot and make it go away. The downside to these agents is that they can cause life-threatening bleeding, including hemorrhagic strokes. Unfortunately, the study doesn't leave us with a definitive answer, and the whole topic still remains controversial. But it definitely highlights one of the major risk-benefit decisions we have to make as emergency physicians. 2014 was also a big year for sepsis resuscitation. Both the PROCESS and the ARISE trials aimed at determining whether early goal-directed therapy for sepsis provides a mortality benefit over standard care. Remember, sepsis is defined as having two or more SIRS criteria in the setting of a suspected or confirmed infection. SIRS, which stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, is a nonspecific physiologic response to either illness or injury. The SIRS criteria are temperature greater than 38 or less than 36 degrees Celsius, heart rate greater than 90 beats per minute, respiratory rate greater than 20 breaths per minute, or a PaCO2 of less than 32 millimeters of mercury, and an abnormal white blood cell count of greater than 12,000, less than 4,000, or consisting of more than 10% bands. When someone meets a criteria for sepsis and is then identified to have signs of end-organ dysfunction, such as altered mental status and elevated lactate or creatinine, we now consider them to have severe sepsis. And continuing along the spectrum, patients progress to septic shock if they develop persistent hypotension. Why is this such a big deal? Well, patients in septic shock do poorly particularly if we get to them late or don't treat them aggressively. Key things are giving them IV fluid if they need fluid, broad-spectrum antibiotics ASAP, and vasopressors if they remain hypotensive despite adequate IV fluid resuscitation. Now, what about early goal-directed therapy? This was originally described in 2001 and is pretty strict and resource-intensive. It requires that a central line be placed for serial central venous oxygen saturation measurements. That is, drawing blood out of a central line every so often to send to the gas lab to get an SCVO2 measurement. If this level is low, say less than 70%, the thought is that we're not efficiently delivering oxygen to the peripheral tissues and the patient may then need blood transfusions to increase their amount of hemoglobin and maybe even dobutamine to provide extra inotropic support. But is it absolutely necessary to place an invasive central line in every septic patient and tailor their treatment based on serial SCVO2 measurements? Both the PROCESS and ARISE trials, published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year, seem to suggest mm, not. Looking back, there are just so many exciting things that came up in 2014, and these were just a few examples. Other things like beta blockers for refractory V-fib, new algorithms to approach PEA, airway management strategies like delayed sequence intubation, and, though not purely clinical, the use of social media to keep us all engaged and connected are just more examples of what went on in 2014. But now, let's look forward to 2015. I'm going to give you my New Year's resolutions, and maybe you can help hold me to them. 
for 2015. We're going to keep on rocking out episodes to help you stay informed and engaged in emergency medicine as a medical student. If you have any comments, suggestions, stuff you want to hear about, or even want to add or contribute, go to our website at www.emstud.com, and we promise to get back to you. I also pledge that this year, I will figure out how to get my remote audio capture up and running so you won't just have to listen to me all the time. And finally, here's some official EM Stud New Year's resolution recommendations for you. If you are an M1 or M2 student out there, get involved with EM early. Go to the ASEP, EMRA, SAEM websites and start learning about the specialty. Get involved in your EM student interest group if you have one, and if you can, find a mentor in EM who can help guide you through your medical school career. Maybe even attend one of the national conferences. It's a great way to learn and connect further with the specialty. If you're an M3 student, do well on your rotations. I can't stress enough how important it is to shine in your clinical years in order to show how well you'll hit the ground running in residency. Also, consider asking for a letter of recommendation from a faculty member on one of your core clerkships if you do an awesome job. It'll be nice to have come application season, and you'll likely get a better letter if you ask while they still remember you. If you don't have an advisor in EM, now's the time to find one. You'll need to sit down and talk about arranging your fourth year. And last but not least, for all you fourth years out there, I know you're working hard on your rank list and preparing for match day, but don't let the rest of the year slip by without taking advantage of the clinical opportunities at your school. Take an elective in something useful. Spend some time in the ICU or on ortho or reading EKGs and chest x-rays. Internship will be here before you know it and you'll thank yourself later. So here's looking forward to 2015 and hoping, expecting another exciting year for emergency medicine. This is Dr. Nate saying stay warm, stay safe, and we'll catch you again next year.